Having a job means having a contract, means having a certain level of protection and a certain level of, of mutual loyalty between the employer and the employee. That loyalty is a one-way road, at least for some of the employees. You can be expected to sacrifice your mental health, your physical safety, your time on weekdays and weekends, mornings and evenings, but you don't expect anything in return. No mental health support, not that one would stand up and support you at the moment when you have to do something extraordinarily difficult, partly or wholly because of the work that you have done for them. When I left Syria, the day I left, I lost a job because, well, you're no longer in Syria, so you're no longer useful, basically. Then when I had to leave Beirut, and both were hardly choices. Some people see work as a job a means to a paycheck they need to live their lives outside the office. Others see work as a career, climbing the ladder one job at a time. But what happens when your job is not only work, but a mission, a passion, or in the case of my guest today, your life? In 2011, the Arab Spring reached Syria. Syrians of all ages took to the streets and town squares to peacefully protest against the government's corruption and economic policies and to demand democratic reforms. Rather than listen, President Bashar al-Assad and his regime responded with brutal force. The ensuing war ravaged the country and displaced millions. Hundreds of thousands more were brutally murdered or imprisoned in Assad's dungeons, their fate unknown to this day. My guest today, Asr Khattab, grew up in Syria, where he studied journalism. Little did he know he would end up reporting on his own country in the throes of the most brutal war in recent history, or that he would be forced to flee Syria to neighboring Lebanon, where he worked for some of the top international newspapers in the world, only to have to flee once again to Paris, where he received asylum and lives today. I spoke with Asr about his incredible journey how his identity impacted his work, whether he thinks news organizations do enough to protect the mental health of their employees, and why ultimately he decided to leave the journalism field altogether and choose a job that allows him to prioritize his mental and physical health. Hi everyone, and welcome back to MindWork, where we're on a mission to transform mental health in the workplace, one story at a time. I'm your host, Jasmine El-Gamal. Asad, I'm so happy to have you. I can't wait to delve into this conversation with you. It's my pleasure. Asad, there's so much for us to delve into. And so I want to start by giving our listeners uh, a sense of who you are and what brought you to the to the profession of journalism and also how your background affected the way that you approached the profession. So I'll turn it over to you. Yes, of course. I am a former journalist who has been identifying as such for about a year and a half now. Um, I grew up in Syria, uh, where I'm from, and it's where I began working as a journalist uh, at a time when the war had already been going on for a few years. And journalism, until a certain point, was the only thing I really wanted to do professionally. And the only thing I did professionally at a time when I did nothing but work, really. For a few years, as many journalists know, this is a sort of career that can take over your whole life. And I'm sure we're going to dig into this in a minute. That drove me to leave Syria because also it's not a place that's very hospitable to people who want to practice journalism, especially an ethical or professional kind of journalism. And I found myself in Lebanon for a few years where 
a lot of the risks were gone, but not all of them. And a few years after that, I had to leave the entire region behind. Um, I moved to Paris, as you mentioned. And since moving to Paris, I started thinking about this profession and my own experience within it and decided ultimately to part ways with this career that I once viewed as my only passion or my only professional passion really in life for reasons that we're about to talk about, I'm sure. My work has been uh, mostly politics, mostly the war in Syria, uh, the economic situation in Lebanon, the, the loads of crises in Iraq, of course, and mostly in English for uh, English language, American and British uh, media outlets, with also some work with, with European media outlets as well. Right. You've worked for the Financial Times, the Washington Post, other big name newspapers. And obviously yes. that was that was a really quick overview because every every single part of that journey, I think, probably deserves its own podcast entirely. But I want to take you back to the very beginning because I was reading an article that you wrote, a really, uh, really poignant article that you wrote for New Lines magazine that talked about why you left the profession and why you stopped writing about Syria. And in it, you describe the fact that this wasn't actually, I don't know how to say, I mean, People were surprised in Syria, your family, your friends, when you told them you decided to study journalism. In fact, I think someone thought you were lying when, and said, hey, why don't you just tell us what you're really doing, you know, instead of lying and making yeah. up this weird thing about studying journalism. So in that kind of environment, what made you decide? You said you've always wanted to be a journalist. I mean, what was it that made you want to be a journalist, especially in a country that, as you said, isn't the most inviting to the, the ethics and the and the integrity and and all the other things that we often um, uh, ascribe to good journalism. And this, of course, is one of the reasons why people did not approve or did not even believe, as you said, that I opted for journalism as a course of study. Now, a lot of it was about social issues that other con countries have and other cultures have too. Journalism is not as approved of by certain people or parents or communities as uh, becoming a, a physician or um, exactly. um, a chemist <laughs> or a den you know whatever it is that people approve of what and, is it, uh, especially engineer. my father exactly <laughs> exactly and and my father being a, a professor of biology who really looks down on any anything that isn't an applied science or the humanities <laughs> and social sciences it was a very tough course too. And I, of course, didn't agree with any of that. What I agreed with being rational was was the other point about Syria not being the, the best place to study and practice journalism. But I decided to enroll in university, get a degree in journalism, and then worry about where and how I'm going to practice it. I started into journalism for more or less for the wrong reasons. I guess I, I saw it as a career with much glamour and with much um, kind of, you know, with connections and with networking and with traveling, uh, all the things that ended up driving, driving me away from, from the career, seeing how some people use journalism as a way to be to become a star at the expense of, of many others. And that was a while ago. And then I went into it and started getting interested in, in the serious side of things. Of course, I always maintained an interest in politics, in history, in social issues. And when studying the war was going on, the revolution and then the war, and Syria was the most important story in the world, all the eyes of the media was on it. And it only made sense that this is where I should start. However, I would not, I can't tell you if 
if I were studying in different times and different circumstances, I would end up doing the exact kind of journalism that I was hurled into at the time, the, the pure uh, on-ground reporting on, on one of the most brutal and violent wars of modern history. Well, not to mention a brutal war that was happening to your people. I mean, your your family, your countrymen, your friends. I mean, to be a Syrian and to have to not only go through that emotional turmoil, that very personal turmoil of seeing your own country fall apart, but then you have to report on it and you have to talk to people who are, you know, dying or fighting not to die or people who are trying to avoid, uh, as you said in your article, you use the terms uh, Assad's dungeons, the dungeons of, of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad. I mean, this was one of the most brutal wars, especially in the sense that it was, I think, the first real war that was waged on social media, I w was waged in front of our eyes. I mean, no matter where you were, you were watching these images and And for a lot of people, when it became so overwhelming or too overwhelming, they were able to just turn off the TV or not look at any Syria-related topics on social media. But for you, not only could you not do that, you were reporting on it and you were living it and you were feeling it. I mean, I don't even know if it's possible to describe what that did to you emotionally, mentally, both as a Syrian and as a journalist. But I don't know if you want to just give it give it a shot and try to... You know, tell tell us how did you cope? Well, the funny thing about that is at the time when all of this was happening, I did not for a moment stop to process any of it. When the war started uh, or when the revolution started, if we, if we begin with us Syrians watching on television and, as you said, following on social media what was happening at the time in Tunisia and in Egypt um, very closely, very keenly, and starting to whisper here and there, me and my friends and certain people uh, in their homes and in their schools and on the street, uh, with the certain, of course, limitations and, and restrictions that we had in Syria that exceeded that of many other Arab dictatorships at the time and still do. We started, we got into this exhilarating phase that somehow, you know, lasted for years and, and for some people didn't hasn't ended yet. And it continued when on the 15th of March, I received a phone call from a friend. I was, I was walking with another and I was informed that the first ever protest is taking place in Damascus, was taking place in Damascus as we speak. Uh, so we stepped into a nearby shoe shop, I think it was, and, and we were watching it live on television. And then, you know, the war, the revolution turned into war, the hope turned into despair. The student turned to, into a journalist who was running around with journalists, especially international journalists, coming to visit Syria at the time. And instead of using the privilege I had, and I had a, an immense privilege of within Syria, I, I was living during the war, I was living in Damascus, in an area that remained more or less safe, at least compared with, with other areas. It was uh, under the control of the Assad regime the whole time. And so it was spared the worst of, of the war because, of course, it was only the Assad regime and Russia that were using the heaviest and worst kinds of weapons and air force and, and all of that on, on residential areas. Uh, but um, in my case, of course, I was having to seek out the areas that, are, that, are, that were suffering more and, and the areas that were more dangerous and to go see the damage that was done to the school in Aleppo where I went for 12 years and to see wow. certain places that I had known 
um, in ruins or, or damaged and to know of harm that that inflict that was inflicted upon people I know or people that my friends knew and and for it to be something that I'm seeking eagerly because when you're in journalism you you get into this mindset that if I'm doing something now for a big media outlet then I'm going to find the most um, painful uh, aching and at the same time influential story that I could in Aleppo or in Homs or in any of those places, because this is going to be powerful on the screen. And weirdly, strangely, when you when you get that story, you you can you need immense force to to keep your empathy at the time when you were doing this interview, because otherwise you're worrying about the as we you know we might be now worrying about the quality of the video and, and the audio and the background of the person who is talking and whether we have the the good sound, sound bite or not and whether this altogether will come to a good package or not it almost dehumanizes the whole experience especially on your part someone in front of you is pouring out their hearts to you and i and i know some people successfully maintain their sympathy and empathy throughout this process and it takes uh, god knows how you know the, the amount of strength that this thing requires. I myself failed at the time and I, I got into the journalist mode. I am a journalist. I am, I am not here to be sad or angry or commiserate or, you know, engage in any sort of feeling with, with any of this. And I forgot for a moment that I am Syrian. I'm as stra- as much of a stranger to this as, as, you know, whoever is with me at the time who's come from Britain or, or the States or Germany. Until I had to leave the country in very abrupt, very unfortunate circumstances. And even as I did so, I was not thinking about it. In fact, I can say with some confidence that the only time, the first time I stopped to think all about all, about all of that is when I was right here in this building in, in France, uh, with everything virtually going perfectly, with, with legal issues sorted and professional issues sorted, you know, no stress, nothing. And then you look back when you have a certain certain kind of normalcy, if I can call it that, in your life, and you look back at what was abnormal and you start realizing how, how much of a toll this must have taken, whether professionally or personally. And as you said, both were mixed throughout those years, all of those years. And I, I can say that it's it resounded with many others that I discussed this this issue with. They also feel like when you're going through this at the time, if you're escaping your home or, or your country or uh, doing something that's extraordinarily difficult from outside, at the time you're just in survival mode and you're just trying to do what you can and you're not stopping to think about it. But at some point or another, it will hit you. Absolutely. And I was just, you know, I was just thinking as as you were saying that, at first, sort of at first glance, when you're listening to the story, you you know, one might find it surprising that the first time you kind of broke down, if I can use those terms, or, or started even processing what was happening, was when you was when you got to Paris. I mean, in your article, you talk about it wasn't when you were escaping from bombs or trying to, you know, write stories under under fire or, or you know, in, in any of these kind of real crisis, war, trauma situations. It's not then when you when you had this breakdown, it was when you were in Paris trying to figure out uh, what coffee shops were open in mid-August because all Parisians are on vacation in mid-August and a lot of stuff is, is closed. And, you know, it, but then when you think about it again, it does, of course, make sense because when you are in those crisis situations, you are completely 
in survival mode. I mean, you don't have a minute to even think about what you're, what's going on, let alone what you're feeling. And you just have to keep going. You have to write that story. You have to tell this person, you know, put that down, uh, file the copy. I mean, you know, do all of that stuff and, and you're running and you're running and you're running. And I think a lot of people who live through trauma situations or conflict zones or any sort of high stress environment don't really get the chance to process in real time. It's something I want to get back to this point later on in, in the show when we talk about kind of lessons learned, because I wonder, knowing what we know about this type of response pattern, if there is a way knowing this, that people could kind of try somehow to process little by little in real time so that when the silence falls, they don't completely fall apart. But maybe we can talk about that in a little bit. But you did you did kind of have that breakdown and you were in Paris, you were safe, you weren't running from from anyone. You had you had uh, applied for asylum, correct, in Paris and you were waiting for for the for the result, but you were safe. And then I'd already you, had it even. I had oh, the you, asylum you'd already in my had it. When, where, yeah. So so even more so. So you were settled. I mean, yeah. not just safe, you were settled. And so there wasn't anything that you were you know scared of or running away from or waiting for. And then you write really poignantly about what happened to you in that time. So I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that breakdown felt like and, and sort of, you know, you called it, you quoted Dante when he was talking about this dark forest, right? And you said you found yourself in your own dark forest when you, when you went to Paris, you know, what did, what was that like? What was that forest like? And how did you get out of it? And how long did it take? It didn't take very long. It's, uh, it, it hit hard when it did. And I don't know if I can go as far as calling it a breakdown because it was still, and, and there were many other factors, of course, external factors at the time. And, and it was lockdown. It was, it was just a depressing period for everyone. And, sure. you know, France had very tough lockdown rules. One of the countries that had those very strict regulations on, on people's personal lives for a very prolonged pe yeah. per period of time. And of course, I chose to, to obey that because that was what's right at the time, I thought. And so it was difficult and it was just around Christmas and, and New Year's and my birthdays around that, that period as well. So, and I was spending all of those milestones on my own for the first time ever. Yeah. So, uh, but also I was uh, not sure what's next in terms of work because I was... I had just lost yet another job, not the first time, because of of who I am. And, you know, it, it's jobs that keep kept coming and going very clear from the beginning until the end that, uh, yes, you're kind of a journalist, but not really, at least not like the others, real ones, the correspondents who come and go and get the credit and, and do this for a couple of years and then go do it for a couple of years elsewhere. They have the staff position. And I, I, I hate this concept really as much as, as, as I hate you, you know, to, to think about how, how difficult it is to, to be in that position where in, in those media companies today, there's this gap between anyone who has what, what's called the staff position, which is really just in, in France, we, you just call that having a job. You have having a job means having a contract, means having a certain level of protection and a certain level of, of mutual loyalty between the employer and the employee. But in journalism, the world of journalism, that doesn't apply for, for any specific country, maybe some countries more than others. That loyalty is a one-way road, at least for some of the employees. 
you can be expected to sacrifice your mental health, your physical safety, your time on weekdays and weekends, mornings and evenings, but you don't expect anything in return. No mental health support, no, uh, not that one would stand up and support you at the moment when you, when you have to do something extraordinarily difficult, partly or wholly because of the work that you have done for them among any uh, other companies. And I, I, you know, that happened when, when I left Syria, the day I left, I lost a job because, well, you're no longer in Syria. So we, we, you know, you're, you're no longer useful basically. And then when I had to leave Beirut and both were hardly choices, uh, that, that I made in, in, you know, in comfort that, you know, oh, I feel like, you know, going to Lebanon or I feel like moving to France. Of course, moving to France was great for me. But as a matter of fact, I think if I had equal privileges to, to other journalists who lived in Beirut, where I lived before moving here, I would have stayed for a while longer. I was doing well professionally. And until today, some of my closest friends and loved ones live there. So uh, I, I would not have minded to be there for a little bit more, but I had no option. I was at risk of being sent back to Syria, where what was awaiting me was getting more dangerous by the day because I was using my name writing for newspapers and saying things that I know the regime wouldn't approve of and the regime's allies in Lebanon wouldn't approve of. And they were in power, of course. They still are in power. And to think that th this would follow me until the end, uh, until at least, you know, when I decided to, to, to be done with, with this career is something would, that would not have occurred to me in the beginning. I thought, you know, like any of those journalists, I can do, I can do well on Syria, work hard, and then move on and do a different story. But apparently it turns out this is a privilege that can't be extended to anyone who is working in this profession. And that I had basically the choice, no one put it to me like this, but basically you have only, you can only cover Syria because that's where you're from. And you can't cover Syria as a senior person because you were too involved, too biased because you're a Syrian. So it was a very tight room for me to grow and to move. And it's not that I, I had this obsession with upwards mobility or anything. It's something I never cared about, actually, until today I don't. But it was about having options. I mean, if, if, if my ability to work should be so strongly intertwined with, with places and themes that are bringing me much harm physically at some point and, and mentally and, until the end. And that was hardly something that, that I could have kept on doing. So let's, I mean, that brings us actually to, to the question of, of the field of journalism itself, right? I mean, a lot of the stuff that you're describing is stuff that I've heard other journalists complain about, especially if they're, you know, like you said, local journalists working for international papers or, or a variety, a variety of other um, scenarios where people just felt like the toll that the job was taking was too much, but that was part of the job, you know, in, in it, and, and, you know, that's what you were saying about it. it it's sort of, that's why it hit me when you said, when I introduced you earlier and you said that you left the field of journalism because of structural flaws, is the field itself structurally flawed in a way that prevents people from practicing that profession and taking care of their mental health or being mentally healthy at the same time? Absolutely. This is a kind of profession that pushes you to look at the worst in life, to follow, to pursue, to uncover what is bad, what is ugly. Uh, what is criminal, 
I think the the mere construction of this this, this work of pursuing what is bad and what is stressful and the fact that of course the news doesn't wait for you so you have to be on alert the whole time from morning until until you go to bed at night and a weekday or weekend because especially when you work in small teams like we often do in foreign offices of of international media outlets it's not really an, a middle east bureau it's one or two people in in a city and uh, you have to deal with all the news coming in all the time. So your social life is is completely messed up by this. And you, you, you're mentally, you're always, even when you're not actively working, you're out having drinks with friends, you're constantly checking your phone for news and reading your email and having to excuse yourself to go pull up your laptop and write a story at a party. We've all seen this, ha- having worked in, in those zones in small media teams. And this is not right, of course. And it ends up, I know last time I went to Lebanon, I was joking, well, half joking with everyone I, I knew who's still in journalism, but I, like a missionary, have seen the light and I want to show it to you too. I want you to leave this career too. I want you to do something else. But unfortunately, it's not, it can't be the solution. I mean, is the solution that everyone should leave journalism? No one does it anymore. Of course not. But for me, I found only leaving it completely behind, leaving the serious story behind as much as I can. And leaving journalism behind, were able to fix my life, put everything back in order, make me, I, I, not that I was, you know, dealing with extreme stress or anxiety on a long-term basis and needing an immediate intervention. Otherwise, there would be, there would be I mean, who knows, but I just didn't I wanted to prevent it from, from getting a lot worse. Yes, to sum up, this is, my feeling is that the way it is today, working for an international media outlet is flawed. Not enough care is being taken of employees, regardless of who those employees are, and regardless of the preferential sometimes treatment of some rather than others. Uh, maybe uh, the safety could, there are some measures having to do with their safety. Maybe they do a counseling session or a wellness session every now and then, but this is not enough. Yeah. I mean, definitely not enough. I mean, there's just so, there's so much more that needs to be done uh, to to take care of, of the mental well-being of people who are under such stressful situations all the time. Obviously, when we're, you know, when we talk about journalism, in this particular episode and in, in your type of journalism, we're talking about conflict journalism. We're talking about journalism in crisis situations. I mean, you could be a journalist writing about the latest restaurants opening up, you know, all, all over the world. And I'm sure there are still going to be issues uh, in that type of journalism. But this specific type of journalism that we're talking about, this very kind of real, gritty it consumes you. You can't just turn it off, like you say, at the end of the day. I know, I mean, I, so many of my friends are journalists and I've also, like you, spent so much time in, in different countries and in, in circles of journalists and the coping mechanisms that journalists have, much like my former colleagues in national security and government, the coping mechanisms are so unhealthy and yet so socially acceptable because people don't really have the tools to do it in a healthy way or have the space or have the ability to just raise their hand and just say, wait a minute, I need help. This is too much for me. You know, it is such a competitive environment. And I'm sure you can speak to this, that no way would you probably have ever said, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, to your editor, I need to take some time off because, you know, I can't, I can't really... I need, I just need to take a break, 
mental health day, you know, whatever, when there's a war to cover. So there isn't room for rest. There isn't a culture that makes it okay to say that you need help. If you do want to seek help, the resources are still to this day, I would argue, uh, and, and I'm curious to hear from you too, are not readily available. So in that case, maybe if we can jump to sort of looking back, well, you're saying that you're evangelizing to your friends. Like, I've seen the light, leave journalism, be happy, do something good. Okay, but we know that most people are not going to take that advice. A lot of people either feel like they have to keep doing it or they want to keep doing it other than leave the profession. You know, what are some things that people can do to be healthier in the profession? And I also want to talk to you about you know, if you were to go to any of your former employers or any bureau chief in any paper in the world and say, and that bureau chief was like, Esser, I want to learn from you. I want to be better to my employees. I want to make sure that they're taking care of themselves in these really stressful conditions. What can I do for them? You know, how would you go about structuring a mentally sound, a mentally healthy bureau foreign bureau. Yeah. I mean, I just, you know, is that even realistic? It's a very difficult question, of course. And I don't think I have the solution or maybe maybe even a viable solution to it. But from my own personal experience, which I can draw upon, I think it has to start with the journalists themselves, because when we're doing this, this job, this is one of those professions that really, really messes with, with, you know, our view of, of, of ourselves, first of all, and, and of what we are doing. And even, even if we don't recognize it, this may not apply to anyone, of course, but we may think that what we are doing is, is so absolutely crucial and important, uh, what, what I'm doing personally, that I have to keep doing it as a service to humanity and that I, I need to take all the burdens and all the risks that come with it out of that and that I want, I'm also maybe the other side of this, you know, I want to make it to the front page as much as I, as I can. And I want to win awards and I want to get a Pulitzer one day. And, and all of that, the, the glamorous side, if I may call it that, and the, the heroic side are both very dangerous to those who are practicing journalism. I mean, I see people, you know, doing their jobs perfectly every day, wherever we go. But this excessive focus on journalism, on, on stardom and on awards and on, on recognition and on being, being known and being uh, respected as an authority or, you know, having thousands of, of Twitter followers or having a, a blue check mark on your social media account, it all goes to, into one's, to one's head, even if, if one doesn't recognize it. And I, I start begin with myself and you feel when I first you know, toyed with the idea of, of leaving the serious story behind, I had the impertinence to think that, uh, oh, I'm abandoning a duty and I am, you know, leaving uh, this kind of thing behind that no one else can do. Well, of course, many people out there can do. And it's not, you know, I stopped reporting on Syria. Nothing changed nothing no nobody noticed that's such a natural thing to think though i mean when you're in it and you're living it day to day and you are reporting on these stories that you think well maybe if i don't speak to this person their story is never going to get out into the world and maybe this will change something yeah. this is something 
completely natural and understandable, not just in journalism and government service. And, you know, when you're working on these issues and you feel, I mean, I remember working at the Pentagon and thinking that if I just wrote the perfect memo to the secretary of defense explaining why we need to, you know, help the Syrian opposition, then the entire U.S. policy in Syria was going to change. I mean, of course, we laugh at it now. But when you care about your job and when you're really invested in the issue, which makes you good at your job, you also kind of weigh yourself down with these heavy, heavy, heavy responsibilities, even as you say, when they're not exactly the case. So, so yeah, I mean, it's just totally understandable. I just wanted to, to say that. I just wanted to reiterate what you said to maintain your longevity in this field, if that is what you want to do, that it is really, really important to have that distance that you said, that distance to, to forget your ego, you know, to think, to, to not think this is that the, the whole weight of the world is resting on your shoulder. If you write those perfect words that something is going to change, of course, of course, not to minimize, but, but that level, that pressure that people I think in this field put on themselves just adds to the level of burnout, just adds to the anxiety. And, and then of course, depression and all the other things that come, come, come along. So maintaining that distance, but also speaking to to your your supervisors, whether it's a supervisor, a bureau chief, you know, anyone like that, because it is true that we are I think we're at a moment where it's we're kind of at a watershed moment, I feel where, you know, we know just enough. And I think the pandemic had a large part to play in this because people had a really hard time, like you said earlier, uh, during the pandemic. Right. And a lot of stuff came out and people just were like, I, I can't, I need to talk about this. I need, I need help. Someone needs to acknowledge what I'm feeling, what I'm going through. And that of course bleeds over into the workplace and applies to our work environment. And so slowly, slowly the workplace is becoming a place where at least the need to discuss this issue is now out in the open, not so much the execution. And I think that's where we're headed now is how to do that in the right way. You know, how do we have these conversations? What is the best way that you can talk to your employer without sowing any seeds of doubt about your capability as a journalist? Because that's still a fear. Wouldn't you say that a lot of people have? I mean, sp specifically speaking about journalists, maybe your former colleagues, would they be scared if they were to go and try to talk about something like this to their yes. employer that maybe they would be taken off some mental list of I'm not going to send this person yeah. to this place because they're yeah. fragile or, you know, so, yeah. you know, I mean, I don't know what you would say to that, but that is still, I think, and I think will continue probably to be a fear on the part of employees. And that's where the employer should come in, don't you think? I mean, that's where the employer Absolutely. should say, no, 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 I want to hear and it's not going to affect your career. Absolutely. And I think there should be, I mean, first of all, people should also talk to, to other colleagues, other reporters, other correspondents who, who are sharing similar experiences. And they, I think there's, there's a great thing going, has been going on, you know, for years now in, in journalism, as in other professions, I'm sure. People were asking themselves about their salaries, and th there's always been a kind of a social professional taboo about this. But this has allowed many to know, many women to know that they're being paid a lot less than their male colleagues for doing more or less the same, and has allowed to see other discrepancies in, in pay and pay gaps that 
are based on gender or race or, or class or whatever it is. And something similar should happen to, to, cause no one can commiserate with you as much as someone else doing the same uh, kind of work uh, for the same or a different media outlet in the same or a different country or region. And, and doing that is going to be very important. And it, it can't, maybe it sh there also should be not just the editor. I mean, these things should be, because the editor will not, can't be the same person who, who wants you to get the best story and holds in their hands uh, where you can go and what you can get and who can who can do what. People, you know, people compete who will be able to cover the certain story that's happening now that will get so much attention. This brings us back to the former point. And you feel like, you know, the, your editor, as you said, might prevent you from doing this because you have complained before. So there have to be more people involved in the wellness of journalists who work for them. Where I work now, I am I am a member of a wellness committee. And though it's it's a lot it's a lot less stressful, of course, and, and damaged uh, than, than journalism, I work for an NGO. We are trying to come up with all these ways to try to make some people work less. And we're trying to be creative about it. How do I I have observed how these people work all the time? They don't need to, and they shouldn't, because first of all, this is, I mean, first of all, you know, I think they should, they should also be able to enjoy their lives while working. And second of all, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that much. And third, you know, they will again be of no use, neither to themselves nor to the employer when they reach the breaking point. It's partly the employer's uh, responsibility to try to take care of you and to be creative about it, not by organizing an, a Zoom wellness session with the rest of the colleagues or something. You know that might be useful, but th there is more to be done. That is all such good advice, I think, and I mean especially coming from the perspective of of someone who's actually been through it. The social media aspect, I think, is something that makes it hard to switch off. So, I mean. You know, I think it's great that you have a well, you're on a wellness committee. I think every organization should have, at the very least, a wellness committee that actually looks at what employers are going through and how they're feeling and kind of keeping, keeping a finger on the pulse of the organization. That's something that is just seems like a really low hanging fruit for a lot of organizations to have. It could be one person. It doesn't have to be an entire committee. So I think that's really, that's really good advice. I think kind of trying to disconnect at a certain point, trying to read other things, trying to do other things is all good. But again, when you're in journalism and when you're covering these kinds of stories that we're talking about and you feel like you always have to be glued to social media, which is so harmful for your mental health. What do you think about that? I mean, what are you do? I mean, you, you don't have social media anymore. You got off. Not anymore. You, you're, you're not on Twitter, right? You used to be. No. No, and, so, and here my line on this is is more forceful and more strict. I think the solution with social media is to leave it, and I think <laughs> I can I can be more comfortably hard line on this. I don't think everyone should leave journalism. I might joke about it. I'm, I think some people should, but social media is infernal and it's it's damaging in all possible ways. And though it may have lots of advantages, including professional ones for journalism, journalists, because it's, Twitter is one of the places you get noticed, it's fine. You can also work on, on getting noticed without doing that and without engaging with it as much. But I think it's a vortex that it will that will suck you in at some point. 
even if you try to manage it as rationally as you can. You know, when I was on Twitter, I thought this is where everything is happening. This is the world. This is where what matters. And I deleted it one day and I haven't looked back since. And everyone, everything is, is you know, the world is, the sun is shining and the world is a better place. And, and people around me are able to engage in discussions and, you know, play with ideas and are more open and, and more graceful than the impression that uh, of, of them that you get from social media. I would one day like to probably work myself out of social media and just have people find my stuff online without having to share it. But I also know that's probably not going to happen. So what I try to do is I've, I unfollowed a whole bunch of people. I stay away from certain topics. I follow more people who have, there's a whole side of Twitter where people are upbeat and share things about wellness and happiness and good news. And anyway, I mean, I guess that it's a broader point about if you cannot leave your profession that is stressing you out, if you cannot leave the thing that is part of your profession that is stressing you out, is there a way that you can mold it to your personality while still using the aspects of it that you need to use to stay in your job? Or broadly speaking, if you are interested in international affairs, but the, the conflict aspect of journalism is really stressful for you because you cannot separate your empathy from your professionalism, then maybe you can still find a way to work on international affairs, just not in a conflict zone. So I just wanted to raise that point because I feel like oftentimes when someone is in despair, and I've certainly been through this and I know others who have because they love aspects of their job, but the particular detail, whether it's the place you're working, the organization, the the context is, you know, really, it takes such a toll that sometimes you do get to the point where you're like, well, I either have to suck it up and be miserable or just leave and lose this part of myself. So yeah. that middle way, I think, is where people have to decide for themselves what that middle way is for them. But just to say there is a middle way, I do think there's a middle way. I don't know if you agree, but Absolutely. Especially with Korea. I absolutely agree. And I, I wish I had a solution to offer. Of course, I, I didn't practice uh, this profession long enough. I mean, the damage the, I started and the damage was done all within five years or so, which were very busy years doing Sy the Syrian war and, and, and that. But um, I, I agree with you, of course. And I, again, journalism is an important profession. Some people out there do it so well. Uh, I guess I just got to a point where I worry about them, especially if they're, you know, friends and, and people I know. And and I think that not enough is being, I, I think they are not doing enough to take care of themselves, thinking that they're fine and they're used to it, uh, which is what I thought exactly, of course, a few years ago. And their employers also see that they seem to be doing fine. So we'll just leave it there. Leave it at that. I think a really, really good point that a lot that I don't think gets made enough in these types of conversations, which is the role that you can play as a colleague to others and the role that others can play as colleagues to you. So I think the peer support is such an important aspect of mental health at work as well. I feel like a lot of times people feel the loneliest when they feel like they are the only ones in their office or in their environment who is feeling that way. Whereas if we just took more time to speak to each other, even forget the management level, but just as peers, that that might go a long way in at the very least, if not solving your issues, then letting you know that you're not the only one. Yes, absolutely. And I think that is not being done enough. I felt that part of my 
I won't say responsibility. It's a big word, but part of the reason I I have since making this decision, been talking about it, writing about it, addressing it, you know, here and there, is the is because I feel like I can, and not everyone who wants to feels that they can themselves. So uh, I, I decided that you know this subject is one that I would always be happy to talk about and engage with. Because even though I'm not saying anything new or anything that that is revolutionary in any sense, just saying take care of yourself and make sure you don't get burnt out. Coming from someone who's had the exact same line of work and had very similar experiences could be helpful in that sense. And and we don't get that sometimes from from others in this career, even peers and colleagues, because it could be a very merciless profession as well. So one has to take action and take care of themselves. Okay. Well, you're not on Twitter anymore. So if people are listening to this and then they're like, oh, well, I want to talk to him. <laughs> they, won't, they won't be able to find you on Twitter. They but won't the be able to find can, me. At the, very <laughs> least, <laughs> at the very least, they can take your advice. And I do think it's really, really good advice. And I do think that just communicating kind of, you know, I think still a lot of people in our fields in this very high stress kind of intense environment, they do have trouble with the word vulnerability. But I do believe that if you are showcasing your vulnerability in, in however way you want to, you don't have to kind of go all out, but just at least you never know what that might be doing to someone else or that how that yes. might be helping someone else and, and how really just how every single word could make a world of difference. So really just encouraging people who are in, especially in these really difficult fields to be open if they're ever uh, going through any anything, especially if you're in a senior position, especially if you're in a management position, I do think that would go a really long way. Absolutely. I absolutely agree. All right. Well, Esther, I can't thank you enough for, for opening up like this, for sharing your, your story. It's such a fascinating journey. You have been through. I feel like you've lived five lives in one and it's just been such a privilege to have you on the show and to have you speak to me. And I know that people listening or watching are going to learn a lot. So thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. I hope you found this conversation helpful. Join me next week as I chat with Florence Gobb, director of the research division at the NATO Defense College in Rome, as we discuss how to protect our self-esteem in highly competitive environments, how to be a good team leader and mentor, and why it's important to treat ourselves as our own most precious resource. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, and share with your friends to help us get these conversations to people who need to hear them.